Hello and welcome to History for Weirdos. We're your hosts, Andrew and Stephanie. And each week, we're going to take you on a journey into the strange, obscure, and relentlessly entertaining corners of human history. Now listen up, friends, because it's about to get weird. Weirdos, welcome back to History for Weirdos, episode number 83. Better late than never. Yes, and thank you guys so much for your patience Mm -hmm. in waiting for this episode to come out. If you didn't know, we put this out a few days later, but we did announce it on Instagram, so shameless plug here to follow us on Instagram at History for Weirdos if you haven't already, and you can stay up to date with the latest about the show. Yeah, that's right. Um, Unfortunately, just had some scheduling issues for this weekend. We weren't able to complete and edit the episode in time. But like Andrew said, those updates do come on Instagram. So at History for Weirdos is where where you'll get the, (laughs) the latest news. Exactly. So without further ado, Stephanie, what's this week's episode about? Well, I did post some hints also on Instagram. You did, yes. And I saw at least one person, if not more, guessed correctly as to what this week's episode is about. We will be discussing Phineas Gage, the most famous brain injury survivor. Oh my god. I think I know about him, actually. Yes. I I have a feeling that you do. You'll you'll see in the story. I'm sure it'll um, ring a bell to you. Uh, the case of Phineas Gage is often referred to as, quote, the man who began neuroscience. Oh my god, that's so cool. Yeah. It's a great moniker. This is a bit weird, though, considering he was actually a railroad construction foreman. Oh, yes. Little is known about his early life, but what is certain is the impact this man would have on modern neuroscience, neurology, and psychology. Wow. And I think the story of Phineas Gage is shared in nearly every Psych 101 course. It was taught in mine. Is that where you think you've heard this before? I think so, yeah. I, back in my high school days of AP Psychology. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't recall if I learned it in my um, high school psych course, but I definitely remember going over it um, in college. And if the curious case of Phineas Gage isn't ringing a bell for you yet, don't worry, I'm going to give you... All the details and probably details that you did not hear about in your Psych 101 class as well. Um, (laughs) I'm glad. Yeah, but I do want to preface that the story is equal parts miraculous and sad at times. There's a lot of highs and lows that we're going to go through. So this is just going to be a roller coaster. Yes, absolutely. Nice. So before we get into the actual... Um, case, I guess, of Phineas Gage. Let's chat just a bit about neuroscience and psychology so that we're all on the same page in terms of the basics of these fields and a little bit about their history. Noise, noise, noise. This will help us better see why Phineas's story is so impactful. I bet you're really going to like the history of psychology part, aren't you, babe? Yeah, totally. So neuroscience is the study of how the nervous system develops its structure and its functions. 
Neuroscientists look at the brain and its impact on behavior and different cognitive functions. And humans have been interested in the brain and deciphering it for a very long time. True. For example, the Edwin Papyrus dates back to 1700 BC. Oh my God. And it's an Egyptian artifact known as the earliest medical text in history. Whoa, that's really cool. I know. This papyrus references the brain, the meninges, the spinal cord, the cerebral spinal fluid... It appears that the author understood that the brain controlled movement at that time. Oh my god. But unfortunately, the author was unable to treat a lot of the neurological disorders that they were recording. So this was... Okay, this blows my mind. So this is like Bronze Age Egypt that we're talking about here. Yes, I'd imagine... don't know this for a fact, but I'd imagine that the, the nameless author of this text was doing autopsies. Mm. And that's the best way, you know, to study the brain without any sort of MRI or CAT scan available. So Right. Well, they did mummify people, so they kind of understood some biology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then in 170 BC, the Roman oh, nice. physician named Galen, or maybe Galen. Galen, yeah. He was responsible for fixing up gladiators. That was his day job. But he was one of the earliest folks that we know of who insisted that a person's temperament and bodily functions were controlled by the brain. Wow, I didn't even know that. That's really cool. Yay, I taught you something about the Romans. (laughs) I know, that's crazy. And then another example of our human fascination with the brain in 1000 AD, the Islamic surgeon Abu al-Qasim al-Zawari. I'm sorry I butchered that. No, that was pretty good. Thank you. I Just, think. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, wait, you wouldn't know. I wouldn't know, but it sounds good. He describes several treatments for neurological disorders in his 35-volume Encyclopedia of Medical Practices called the Kitab al-Tasir. That's a lot of volume. That's to a write. lot. That dude just must have been writing for years on end. He was really interested in medical practices. <laughs> um, but even with these amazing insights, so much mystery remained about the brain and its functions, especially obviously for the everyday person. Oh, yeah. These folks that I mentioned had abnormal access to this information. Mm hmm. And for a long time, many people in Western cultures attributed a person's emotions and temperaments to another organ. Can you guess which organ? Mm, what? The heart? Yep, the yeah. heart. They're, like, I know we say it metaphorically in modern times, but back in the day, people truly believed like my feelings and behaviors are coming out of my heart. Right? Oh, wow. I wonder if that's where it comes from, like just the saying. Yes. Isn't that interesting? That is, yeah. That's cool. And then, of course, another field that we'll be discussing is psychology. You don't know anything about psychology, right? <laughs> no, just have a lot of debt, but <laughs> got no knowledge. Oh, the listeners are going to be mad at me. Sorry, guys, I laughed really hard there. <laughs> well, modern day psychology encompasses a wide range of topics. We look at human behavior, mental processes. We look at the neural level and the cultural level of what impacts human behavior right Mm -hmm. psychologists essentially study human issues that begin before birth in utero and continue until death wow it's a big field that is a huge field 
Psychology is a young science with its experimental roots in the 19th century. But before that, humans were still, again, fascinated by our thoughts, our behaviors, our personalities, what makes us different, what makes us similar. Right. It's just that psychology, instead of being, being viewed scientifically, was viewed through the lens of philosophy. I was about to say, probably ancient Greece, Rome. Literally, I was, the next part is its earliest known history going back to the ancient Greeks. Of course. You knew it. I knew it. It's not until the mid-1800s that a German physiologist named Wilhelm Wundt... I don't know how to say this name. What do you think? Wilhelm Wundt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably how you say it. That's not how I'm going to be saying it. Well, Wilhelm Wundt, um, that we know of someone using formalized research methods to study what he called consciousness. Oh, that's actually really interesting. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wundt opened the world's first psychology lab in 1879 at the University of Leipzig. This generally for people marks the official start of psychology as its own scientific discipline. Oh, that's cool. Now, keep in mind that our story with Gage begins in 1848. So we're like a solid like three decades before that. Yep. It means there is still so much at this point in time that people do not understand about the brain, human behavior, and the concept of the mind. I mean, you could probably say that about us now. Definitely. I would concur for sure that there's still so much mystery behind the brain, Mm -hmm. which is just fascinating because we all have one. (laughs) Yeah. And we don't fully understand them. Like anatomically, or like humans that have that have shared like the same anatomy with us, I guess is probably the best way to say it, have been around for like 250,000 years. Yes. Our brain is very ancient. Yeah. Yet very mysterious. Yeah, seriously. So to put this into even more perspective before I jump into Gage, at the time of Gage, phrenologists, and phrenology is a debunked science, we're still assessing people's personalities by measuring and touching bumps on their skulls. Oh my god. I just remember the scene from Django Unchained. Yes. Yeah. That and references phrenology. Yes, exactly. And that's, Are you saying that by this time it's already debunked? Or is no, it like... Oh, okay. This is common practice. Got it. People would go to phrenologists to understand personality through bumps. That's like... It's so funny. That's so dumb now. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we now have the hindsight of that has nothing to do with it, right? Sometimes we develop bumps and different shapes for different reasons. Actually, uh, the passage through the birth canal is a Mm -hmm. big reason for head shape. Um, That has nothing to do with your personality, though. True. Now that we've had those little mini lessons to recap where we are scientifically... Let's get back to Phineas Gage. Yes. So we don't know a lot about his early life, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. but here's what we do know. He was born July of 1823. The exact date varied depending on the source. So just July of 1823. Yeah. All we know of his educational background is that he was literate um, and he was described as healthy, strong, and active. There are some photos of him that were actually discovered fairly recently in, like, 2009. Oh, wow. And um, despite something very evident that you see 
on his face as a result of this story. He's he's strikingly very handsome mm. young man, and he looks very like strapping. I guess is the word. Okay. He looks very strong. Um, he looks like he's a tall guy, a big guy, very strong and muscular. And uh, Gage may have first worked with um, explosives on farms as a youth or in nearby mines and quarries. And that's essentially what leads to his work in, in railway construction. Um, in July of 1848, he was employed on the construction of the Hudson River Railroad near... Okay, this is like an American town, and I don't know how to say it. Cortland? Cortland. There's a T after the land. Cortland. Cortland. Cortland town, New York. And by September, he was a blasting foreman on those railway construction projects. Okay, so I know where this is going, but even then, I'm like, his job is to blow stuff up? That's fun. Yeah, his job was to (laughs) blow stuff up. Uh, His employers described him as, quote, most efficient and capable foreman, a shrewd, smart businessman, very energetic and persistent in executing all his plans of operation. So Phineas worked in the railroad industry during a time when railway transportation was really booming in the United States. Uh, The first railroad in North America was chartered in 1827, so like fairly recently for him. Mm -hmm. And by 1840, more than 2,800 miles of railroad were operational in the United States. That's like quite a boom. That is. That's insane, actually. Yeah. So at the time... um, this industry really represented like modernization, even though to us they seem very antiquated and that's true. Kind of like a silly, slow form of transportation. <laughs> yeah, um, I guess that's good for freight nowadays, but that's about not yeah. for like personal travel. No, I think for personal travel, I've seen kind of this like romanticized idea of trains being right. um, promoted, I, and I like it. Like really fancy old-fashioned trains or like mm-hmm. trains that look like they're all glass and you get to see like pretty sights that that actually be kind of cool yeah that sounds like a really fun trip have you seen the ones i think it's like throughout switzerland oh my god yes we should do that we should do that let's do it weirdos yeah all like about <laughs> however many thousands of us let's do it let's go yeah or there's also uh, i think very famously here in california the train like through wine country you can do like a. oh yeah i think i vaguely have heard of that yeah it's like really pretty vintage uh trains have you ever been on an amtrak yeah of course okay all the time when my mom and i would go to tijuana sometimes we would take the train from la to san diego mm-hmm. and then walk across the border whoa yeah cool so i spent i've actually spent quite a bit of time on an amtrak not to brag <laughs> i think i've been on one like twice <laughs> really yeah Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, because they're, to us, fairly obsolete. But yeah. back for Phineas Gage, this was the industry to get into. So by September 13th, 1848, 25-year-old Gage was working as a foreman of the crew preparing a railroad bed near Cavendish, Vermont. He's young, he's in good health, and he's employed in this nice growing industry. I imagine that life felt pretty normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and sadly, that was all about to change. Oh, snap. 
He was using an iron tamping rod to pack the explosive powder into a hole Okay. to blow up some rocks. This is how I dumbed it down, (laughs) (laughs) what he was doing. And an iron tamping rod, uh, it makes sense when you see the visual, like you'd know what I'm talking about, but it's basically like a thicker rod to like pat down the powder. Mm. And he's doing that, which I'm sure he did so many times before. And suddenly the powder detonated and it sent the 43 inch long one, one, 0.25 0.25 inch diameter tamping rod hurling up and the rod penetrated his left cheek severed his optic nerve tore through his brain and exited through his forehead until it landed about 80 feet away that's insane so it didn't get stuck in there it like went through, through. it blew through oh my god blew away that is wild. That was the power and the pressure behind it. Jeez. And it just... I mean, it's guess it's kind of like a gun. Like a, like yeah, a, like a bullet. Like, like a big, long, thick bullet. Yeah. In 2012, new research estimated that the iron rod would have destroyed approximately 11% of the white matter in his frontal lobe and 4% of his cerebral cortex. That's wild. It's That's a lot of brain to get just like obliterated. <laughs> like in a split second. Yeah, when you're just at work minding your business. He's like, yeah, I'm just going to blow some stuff up. And then uh, boom, <laughs> like his head gets blown up a oh little bit. Oh my God, yes. Usually when a foreign object penetrates the skull and cuts through the brain, it's lethal, right? It's totally um, deadly for that to happen. Right. But miraculously, Gage survived. He was immediately after completely Mm -hmm. conscious and was speaking. Okay, that would freak me out. Oh, could you imagine? I don't know what's scarier is being like the coworker that watched it happen and then sees him like, wait, what happened? Or being you and being like, wait, what just happened? (laughs) And everyone's like looking at the freaking hole through your head. And just like freaking out. So scary. That's terrifying. Well, he did have... Immediately, he was okay, but there was some recovery that I'll go over. Um, Many of the descriptions, if not all, the descriptions of Gage's injury and his mental changes were made by Dr. John Harlow. Um, Much of the research that we know about this case is based on Harlow's observations. Mm. So Gage is fine when the iron rod blows through his head and then about 10 days after the accident he endured a brief period where he was like in and out of consciousness oh wow and then his doctors were like well i guess he's gonna die (laughs) that was their observation but gage recovered and within a matter of months he regained his physical strength and was able to go back to work He showed no motor or speech impairments, and his memory remained intact. Isn't that nuts? That's kind of wild. I mean, kind of wild. It's insanely wild. It just seems like, what are the odds? With no true medical care, right? We don't know a lot about the brain at this point. Everyone's just kind of looking at him like, wow, this is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were going to die. Wow, this is wild. Cool, 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 cool. Yeah. 
In the months that followed, he goes home and lives with his parents for a while to recuperate. Mm -hmm. And then Harlow, his doctor, sees Gage again the following year. And he noted in his records that Gage had lost vision in his eye and um, the eye, the side where the optic nerve was severed. Mm -hmm. And he had some pretty serious scarring from the accident. But aside from that, he was in good physical health and he appeared recovered. His um, survival truly just amazed people, as you can imagine, when word got out. Yeah. In November of 1849, Henry Jacob Bigelow, the professor of surgery. (laughs) I love the way you said that. (laughs) Henry Jacob Bigelow. I don't know why. That's what it feels like it needs to be said. Fair enough. He was the professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School at the time. He brought Gage in um, for several weeks because he did not believe that this was true. He thought it was a hoax. And he finally satisfied himself that this had actually happened, that an iron rod had gone through his head. And then he presented him to a meeting of the Boston Society for Medical Improvement. <laughs> he like brought him as show and tell. <laughs> Look at this man here. Yep, exactly how yeah. I think he said it. <laughs> Gage, actually, around this time, was even a living exhibit at the Barnum's American Museum in New York City. Wow. Not the circus, but the museum. Um, And they have found advertisements that are offering sort of these like paid public appearances of Gage to come. So he was like an OG influencer. He was like an influencer. (laughs) He could pay him to come to your parties and people could look. That's incredible. Very funny. Um, And I think it's funny because apparently it looks like Gage was the one kind of driving that. Mm -hmm. He was like, oh yeah, if people want to pay me to come hang out, I'll do it. Yeah. But even though this was a miracle, it did not leave Phineas Gage completely unaffected. Uh, Unfortunately, he did have some hardships to come. No. I know. Poor guy. Um, One of the main fascinating elements of this story aside from his survival Mm -hmm. is that gage's personality appears to have changed after the accident he went from being well liked and professionally successful to being restless unreliable fitful irreverent and grossly profane showing little deference for his fellows these are quotes His behavior was so changed that he wasn't able to keep his job. And reportedly, his colleagues commented that he was, quote, no longer Gage. Yo, where's the workers' comp, man? Where's the workers' comp? I don't think they had those rights yet. That's, like, insane. Oh, yeah, sorry this, like, metal rod went through your head. And Uh. now you're kind of challenging to be around? Yeah, you're you're a different person, yeah. Yeah, because of these changes... Gage is widely cited in modern psychology as the textbook case for post-traumatic social disinhibition. This syndrome happens after a traumatic brain injury, also Mm -hmm. called a TBI, and it's characterized essentially by inappropriate social behavior. And it usually, by inappropriate social behavior, that's usually defined as like very little regard for others, Mm -hmm. which does sound like what his um, colleagues were describing of him. According to Malcolm Macmillan, who is a professor at the Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences and the author of a book called An Odd Kind of Fame, Stories of Phineas Gage, Mm -hmm. 
Um, Macmillan says, quote, he was the first case where you could say fairly definitely that injury to the brain produced some kind of change in personality, end quote. That's a big deal. It's a very big deal. And this was such a big deal that in the mid uh, in the mid 1800s, because as we talked about, the brain was just so unknown. Mm-hmm. We know now, though, in part because of Gage's accident, that the prefrontal cortex, which if you remember, that was where he lost 11% of the brain matter. Right. This is responsible for functions like empathy, emotional regulation, insight, and fear modulation. It's pretty important. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's really important. And then what you were saying, like he didn't really have regard for other people. He was uh, fitful. Yep. He had a bunch, it sounded like social anxiety. Like, so kind of makes sense. It totally makes sense with what we now know. Um, Gage's case as a result has been revisited by nearly every generation of neuroscientists and psychologists since. Oh, sure. Diagrams were made of his skull in the 1940s. CT scans were done in the 1980s. And in the 1990s, 3D computer models were built to reassess his case. That's so amazing. They're just like, just looking at it through different ways as technology improves. Yes. And as I mentioned in 2012, there was another like major re-examination of the case. And that's how we identified how much matter he would have lost. Wow. Um, we can see why this case has remained so famous and is taught so often. Uh, there is something, however, about Gage that most people don't know. Oh, tell us. According to Macmillan, the author that I mentioned, these bizarre and aggressive personality changes witnessed by those around him were not permanent. These changes did not last any longer than about two to three years. Whoa, whoa, what? So did he revert back to the old gauge? Yeah. He okay. Went back to... That, I did not know that. And that's like even more interesting to think about, right? Yeah. So sometime after the accident, the recovery, going to Boston, being shown around with all the fancy doctors, going to the Barnum Museum, all of that. Being an OG influencer as well. Yeah. He... <laughs> He can't work at the railroad anymore, so he decides to move to Chile, I think. Okay. And he works as a long-distance stagecoach driver. This job would have required a lot of focus and a lot of self-regulation. And it's noted that during this time, he eventually returned to his previous temperament. He went back, like you said, to the old gauge. And this is just so fascinating. This overlooked fact illustrates how powerful and resilient the brain is. Yeah. Even without medical, like, understanding of his brain and no, like, post-TBI care, he was still able to rehabilitate. That is so absolutely wild. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I'm sure, you know, sometimes you watch those, like, I do those like snippy little like TikToks or reels about like the brain and how it's possible to change at any point in your life, blah, blah, blah. Right. And you might've heard the term neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what this is showing. Um, the idea that the brain is not a stagnant done thing. Like, Oh, you're done baking. You're all good. It's constantly evolving and changing up until we die. Are those changes slower 
and harder as we age, probably. Right. Because those neural pathways are stronger and stronger. Mm-hmm. But it's possible. And he showed that. Yeah, I mean, through something that's insanely traumatic. Insanely traumatic, like physical trauma, right? To the brain, as well as emotional trauma. And he was able to recuperate. Wow. That's kind of amazing. He lived for a dozen years after his accident. Um, But ultimately, the brain damage he'd sustained probably did lead to his death. I was going to... Man, so he was only, what, 37 when he died? Yeah. Ugh. That's where you see. I told you roller coaster. We're up, and yeah. now we're going back down. <laughs> yeah, we're going down really fast. Yes, because not a ton is known at this time, right? He's no right. longer in the U.S. He's not um, being observed or studied any further. It's just we know he kept in touch with his family. He lived abroad. He got better, um, and he died. And then he he declined. His his physical health declined, not mm. his uh, mental state. On May 18th, 1860, Gage um, left Santa Clara where he was and he went home to live with his his mom, it says. I don't know if his father was alive um, because he started having severe convulsions. Oh. The family physician was called in and bled him. That's, oh my, they still were doing that? That's where we're at. Jeez Louise, man. They're like, oh, he's convulsing. Maybe I should cut him. The convulsions, you know, didn't stop. Of course. And they just were becoming more frequent day and night. Um, And unfortunately, he did pass away on May 21st, 1860. So just a few days after he got home. Oh. The curator at the Warren Museum of Harvard, which I'll tell you later why they're Mm -hmm. important. He has a really great quote, quote, though, about Gage's experiences that I wanted to share. He said... Quote, in 1848, he was seen as a triumph of human survival. Then he becomes a textbook case for post-traumatic personality change. Recently, people interpret him as having found a form of independence and social recovery, which he didn't get credit for 15 years ago. Mm. I think that is really important to remember. Um, It would take, I think, immense resilience to pull your life back together, even if that life is cut short. Right. No, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. So, I mentioned the Warren Museum. Today, Gage's skull, along with the tamping rod that bore through it, the actual one, are conserved at the Warren Museum, which is um, part of the Center for History of Medicine and Harvard's Library of Medicine. That's so cool. We should go. I know. You can actually go and see it yourself. And you're asking me, Andrew, how did his remains get there? Yes. I'll tell you. (laughs) That's exactly what I'm asking. Well, when Gage died, his body was exhumed. I don't know why. I don't know who asked. I don't know. Right. But his skull and the tamping iron were sent to... The physician who had cared for him after the accident, Dr. John Harlow. Um, Harlow later donated the items to the Warren, and they have remained there for 160 years. That's so wild. I know. I, I mean, also, the, they actually had the tamping rod, like, even, like, a decade and a half later. Yeah. I don't know if, like, his family kept it. And right, because they were like, they're like, this is wild. 
Yeah. I mean, it went... Okay, so here's the thing that just blows my mind, no pun intended. Oh my god. <laughs> that was such a poor choice of words. <laughs> or was it? Yeah. <laughs> so it goes through his head, this tamping rod. And then, like, what? Like, I mean... What do you do? It go, like so it launched, but it what I think blows my mind again. Oh my god! I, I said it on purpose that time, but seriously, but like what is just intriguing to me is like how it goes another eighty feet. Yeah. Like after it goes through his head, it didn't slow it down. It kept going at full force, and the photos that were discovered. There's two photos of him. One was discovered in two thousand nine. Um, some family just had this like random photo. They didn't know how they got it. Some historian friend or like armchair historian friend was like, wait, I think that's Phineas Gage. Turns out it was. Like pre-accident? Post-accident. Okay. That's why it was so distinct. Um, and the other photo was one that was passed down through his family line. Whoa. And it's a similar photograph. But... Um, the photo shows him holding the tamping rod. <laughs> One of his eyes is uh, scarred. Mm. It's kind of scarred over, but he's like sitting and posing and doing the old timey thing of not smiling. Oh, right. And in one hand, kind of like a staff, he's holding the tamping rod that blew through his head. So I guess he had a sense of humor about it. <laughs> I guess so. So he must have kept it or his family kept it. and. Right. So that's probably, I mean, yeah, the company that was contracting him was probably like, yeah, you can keep You can it. keep that. Yeah, totally keep it. Yeah, don't worry about it, man. Also, you're fired. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry for your accident. Yeah, I know. It's just, it's crazy because like nowadays that's like, okay, that's like a $10 million lawsuit. Totally. Yeah. I mean, and workers' rights are very important. Yes. For many reasons. So as I've mentioned now many times throughout this episode, what researchers have learned from Phineas Gage's survival has been so important in how we understand ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think obviously there's like the big main story that we all learn in psych class, which is like, wow, like personality. A lot of it comes from the prefrontal cortex. That's so interesting. Right. But I really love the point um, that these authors and museum curators have made that what's even more interesting is this human resilience mm -hmm. that this case really shows that that does get overlooked. Yeah. I'll end with a final quote by that same museum curator, Dominic Hall, who summarizes the legacy of this story. He said, quote, by continually reflecting on his case, it allows us to change how we reflect on the human brain and how we interact with our historical understanding of neuroscience, end quote. And I'll add that it also allows us to reflect on like what it means to be human and to go through really traumatic things and keep going. Right. That is true. It's like, it is a really good story of like perseverance. Totally. That's the word that kept slipping my mind. Yeah. Thank perseverance, you. like of both like spirit and just like our bodies. Yes. They're such, they're so amazing. The human mind, the human body, both like just incredible things that Sometimes we can take for granted. Definitely. Um, we don't appreciate, you know, the full power of our brains maybe until an iron rod gets blown through it. <laughs> <laughs> and we shouldn't have to wait for something like that to happen. Right. So that, weirdos, is the story of Phineas Gage, the most famous 
brain injury survivor. Wow. Thank you so much for like going more in depth than Phineas Gage. The only thing I knew about him is like he survived having a rod like through his head and he was different after that. That's mm-hmm. all I knew. Yeah. Those are kind of like the cliff notes and I'm, I'm glad that I got to share a little bit more. I had a lot of really good sources this cool. week. Um, one was obviously Harvard. Just like their website, um, an article of called Lessons of the Brain, Phineas Gage's Story, mm-hmm. Britannica.com, uh, VeryWellMind.com, which is like a medical kind of website, but more accessible than like WebMD, uh, that I actually read a lot. I didn't, I was surprised to see this here, but VeryWellMind had a brief history of psychology. Oh, very cool. BrainWorldMagazine.com, A Brief History of Neuroscience. Very nice. AmericanRails.com, which is where (laughs) I learned more about the railroad industry. (laughs) Uh, This NPR article, which talks about the story. It's a totally different story. It's really cool. Of how this family got his photograph. (laughs) And it's called um, Why Brain Scientists Are Still Obsessed with the Curious Cage of Phineas Gage the National Library of Medicine, and Wikipedia. Of course. Of course. And that is all that I have for you all this week, weirdos. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. I, like I said earlier, learned so much about this. And um, I think this was a really, this was really crazy. This was nuts. Yeah, this was even crazier than I, I thought it was going to be. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, weirdos... You know the drill. Follow us on Instagram at History for Weirdos. And until next time. Until next time, weirdos. Adios. Adios.